thank you very much. It's lovely to have a bit more time with you. I've really enjoyed chatting to some of you, and I really appreciate some of the comments people have said. I really like it. I think it's, yeah, kind of getting it. it just kind of wondering how to put it all together, this sort of strange material from the book of, of Ecclesiastes. And some of the questions have been, but what about what I'm doing every day? What about mission, evangelism? Um, I hope that tonight's session, maybe m much more tomorrow, but tonight and tomorrow go together. Okay, tonight is on death, and tomorrow morning is on life. And I hope that everything. I hope if there's bits of your, bits of the puzzle kind of floating around out there, I hope that tomorrow morning they just click, um, perfectly into place. If they haven't clicked into place, there is a question time, um, and if they haven't clicked into place by the end of the question time, we're in trouble. So it's nothing more. I've failed. There's nothing more we can do. Um, I want to just pick up where we where we got to this morning before we come to chapter seven and think about death. I want to just go back to the last point. Uh, up here about Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you want to have that open uh, again, we we looked at some aspects of the first few verses of chapter 8, and we got to the last point here that uh, because... Um, we, we got to the last point here, number 6, which is that life is ordered, okay? So all these other things, it's short, it's elusive, it's repetitive, it's rhythmical, it's relational. And the last thing in many ways for many of us is the key, is the key one, that we need to know that life is ordered. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. I did say try and effect some of the changes. Go from here and walk towards the pain in some relationship. It, it is possible to change the seasons of life by what you do. That can be done sometimes, but mostly the seasons of life happen to you. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. You, you're not really in control of when those things roll into your life in some way. And when, when you put all of these things together, these times for these opposite extremes, okay, life doesn't look ordered. Life looks higgledy-piggledy and all sorts of, all sorts of chaos and confusion. I, I'm, I'm older than many of you, 46 now. I have 15 years... Um, 15 years of pastoral ministry, I have a number of painful, loose ends that I don't think I'm ever going to get resolution over. Situations of relational breakdown with certain individuals that have been exceptionally painful. And despite our efforts on both sides, we cannot seem to reach connection again. We cannot seem to put things back together. It's now my generation, my age, the people I was at university with who are getting cancer and dying. It's, it's my parents who are starting to just be a bit more frail. Um, I, I'm entering that season of life where the, the loose ends of life are really quite pronounced. Okay, And what I need to know, what helps me hugely is chapter 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Two things to see here in this, that life is ordered. The, the, the first thing is that eternity will make sense of everything. Okay, that, that's what I take the first half of verse 11 to be. He has made everything beautiful in its time. I don't think that means, if you look at verse 8, a time for war and a time for peace. I don't think that's, you know, we're, Ukraine is at war. I don't think verse 11 is meaning that time that you're in is beautiful. 
Is it, it's not, is it? It's unspeakably awful. I think it's in the context of verse 11 that it is, it is eternity that will make the seasons of time beautiful. Okay? We can't see yet how all these different, different times in verses 1 to 8, we can't see how they all fit together into one perfect whole. Again, we sang it, didn't we, in the morning. I can't remember the words. I should have looked them up. Psalm 144. There was a beautiful way of describing uh, the, the tapestry of life and the way that things work. You and I, okay, have you ever had this experience where you walk into a room, your friends are watching a film, or you, in our case the kids are watching a film, I walk in, an hour into the film, I watch 15 seconds, uh, you know, in our house usually high school musical, something like that, so I watch 15 seconds, I'm, I'm straight out again, and over, over dinner I say, that, that looked absolutely awful. 15 seconds, that, that, didn't, that didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And my daughter say, oh no, here's how it works. And they tell me from beginning to end, okay? Your life and my life, life is a mist. We, you and I are those 15 seconds in the room. But your life is part of this universal story that God is telling from beginning to end. And what do most of us spend our 15 seconds of mist doing? Questioning the director of the story. Questioning the director of the film. So I don't know if any of you have, have seen Terence Malick's Tree of Life. Anybody seen that film? Um, if you haven't seen it, just take it from me. It is not a date night film, okay? Don't put Tree of Life on um, if you're trying to impress somebody or get close to somebody. That will backfire and go backwards. This is, this is film club night film. This is discussion night film. Um, Terence Malick with, um, it's, it's an A-list film in terms of celebrities. It's got Brad Pitt in it, Jessica Shastin in it. He, what, what he does is he takes the story of Job and puts it on the screen. and puts it on the screen in modern-day form. So it's a modern 1940s, 50s family, I think. A tragedy happens. Uh, the, the main character in the film is called Jack O'Brien, J-O-B. And what, what happens is you watch this family live their life. It's the most beautiful descript, depiction of childhood. The film critics say it's the most stunning the most stunning evocation of childhood that you ever see on, on film. I think, and I think that's right. You see this lovely family with all their tensions and problems. A tragedy happens, okay? And then I kid you not, if you, if you watch it, you know this is true. You're watching the film. You're watching Brad Pitt in the one minute. And the next minute, you get 15 minutes of a volcano erupting. Yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, my goodness. And then okay, you go back to the family and other things. You see them with their grief and their trauma. Then you get 10 minutes of dinosaurs, more volcano erupting, all the rest of it. And what Terence Malick is doing is he's trying to put on film God's answer to Job. Job shakes his fist at God and says, this is not right. I need an explanation. And what is God's answer to Job? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? God's answer to Job is not to answer the problem of suffering. It's to say to Job, you are not built to understand the answer to suffering. You, 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 don't, you don't know how to call the lightning bolts in before you, before they crack and go out through the earth. You don't, you don't call them in and tell them what to do and give their instructions. Do you know how to do that, Job? Do you know how to um, walk in the deep and see what happens in the bottom of the ocean? You, you, you're not physically able to do any of that. So if I tell you the reason why I've done what I've done, Job, you would not understand it. And Terence Malick tries to put on, put on to screen the idea that this family's one trauma 
is a tiny, tiny section of the entire story of the universe that God is telling. It doesn't mean that the pain is not real and the trauma is not real, but it does mean that there is somebody writing a story that we cannot see the beginning and the end. Um, I, I think that is profoundly helpful for us, isn't it, to know that whatever time you are in, God will make that time beautiful somehow one day and in a way that we cannot see or understand. And he, here's why it matters. Look down at verse 16 of chapter 3 as well. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Friends, if life is not ordered by eternal judgment, then we are done for. If, if life is not going to be followed by judgment, by justice, then I think we are of all people, most people to be pitied. We need that, don't we? You, you, you see this happen occasionally. You, you get a, a kind of trivial example, I guess. Did you see Amber Heard's face in court when the ruling went against her, her, her conviction is that she has been treated unjustly. When people go to the highest court of the land seeking justice and feel that they have been robbed of justice, or, or the, the indignation and the hurt and the trauma is massive, isn't it? When a gunman shoots his way into a school and murders children and takes his own life before there is any, any equity, any justice, any judgment, that the trauma is greater for the families. We need life to be ordered by the fact that you cannot do these things and escape scot-free. We need God to be able to put things right somehow. Look at, look at verse 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The commentators say it's, like, it's a shepherding word. It's like, it's like a, a farmer sending a sheepdog out after the, sh the lost sheep to get it, round it up, and, and bring it back again. Verse 15 is saying that the things that have been, okay, the things that have happened to you, the traumas you've experienced, the injustices you've known, they are not lost to God. God can go and get them and bring them back. And it's because of that thing that we, 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 we began with this morning, thinking about eternity. If, if millions of years is present to God in one moment, do you think he's forgotten what happened to you two years ago, five years ago, last week? And nothing that has happened to you is lost to him. He'll be able to fetch it back. And what he will do with it is bring it into his courtroom Verses 16, 17, and 18. Okay, so life is ordered by this eternal perspective. This helps us suffer well. It helps us lose. It helps us trust God. It helps us know that um, one day all will be well. And just finally, very briefly, a second thing about life being ordered by eternity. It's there in the second half of verse 11, isn't it? God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the, beginning to the end. I think the way, the way to understand that is it means that your heart is too big to hold the very best that the world has for you. Okay, all these good gifts, 
are just gifts and they, they, they are physical good gifts, but your heart is too big to take hold of them and be satisfied by them. Uh, it's why you get Rockefeller saying, how much, you know, billionaire, how much money is enough? Just one more dollar. Just one more. And there's no doubt money helps, doesn't it? It's a lot nicer to be living on a yacht in Monaco than it is in a council estate slumming somewhere, wherever. But even those rich people just want more. They just want the next yacht. They just want the next thing. They want the next thing. And it's because God is, that, that amazing description of God being outside time, being present in one moment, God has given you a taste of that. You, you have this longing for something more. You have this longing for perfection. You have this longing for a perfect world. Uh, and it's just really important to remember that. Why am I really wanted this house? I've got it now, and it's not it's not all it was cracked up to be. Or this person that I thought was amazing, and I've married them, and ah, oh, they're actually a sinner, just like I am. And your 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 heart is just going to be constantly restless, looking for something extra and more. And it it's because there is this eternal dimension to it. So that's that's time. Life is ordered. Time is ordered by eternity. Let's, what you've all been waiting for, let's do death. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Okay. This is, this is a theologian uh, at Aberdeen University, Brian Brock. He said this, we need to be alienated from what we think we know in order to genuinely grow. And I think that's what Ecclesiastes does with death, okay? I, I said at some point through the weekend, there are two main ways we think about death. A curse, God's punishment in Genesis. A blessing, departing, to be, departing this world to be with Christ. And we think that's all there is about death. Actually, there is this third perspective that is going to, going to just rock our world a little bit and alienate us from what we think we know about death. And in that alienation, there is a great gift in that alienation, we have the capacity to grow and to learn. <clears throat> Anybody know who this man is? Anybody recognize him? No? And uh, not Ert Ayrton Senna. So F1, yes. Yep. No. This is, this is a man called Alex Zanardi. I want to do something with this life of mine. I want to take my life as a great opportunity that I cannot waste. So Alex Zanardi, uh, an F1 Formula One racing car driver, but in 2016, he won gold in the hand cycling event at the 2016 Paralympics in Rio de Janeiro. And the reason he was there is because 15 years earlier as an F1 racing car driver, he lost both his legs in a high-speed crash in Germany. On receiving his gold medal at the Paralympics, Zanardi said this, he said, I feel my life is a never-ending privilege. Even my accident, what happened to me, became the greatest opportunity of my life. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I sit up and take notice when I hear somebody say something like that that there is something beautiful, isn't there? There's something disorientating in finding a gift where you only thought there was tragedy. The amazing thing for somebody to say, my accident, losing my legs, became the greatest opportunity of my life. 
I want to say to you this evening, that is Ecclesiastes on death. This material is really strange. It has, the op- it has the capacity to come in by the back door and unsettle and surprise us. It is, it is Thistleton's phrase from Friday night. It, it wounds from behind. And yet it's going to say death has the capacity to become the greatest opportunity of your life. I want to try and show you this from uh, a few different places. I'm going to show you three things about death. Death is a surgeon. Death is a preacher. And death is an artist. Okay? We're probably not going to do the artist one. The artist one is really tomorrow. That's really what I mean about life. Okay? That's, that's really where we're going, we're, we're going to get to on, on life tomorrow. So the first two this evening. Okay? So if you just think about a surgeon, some of you may be training to be surgeons. You know surgeons. A surgeon operates on a human body, don't they? And the way that they operate is that they hurt the body, first of all. They wound it, and they cut it, and they sometimes have to break it again. And they go in in a painful way in order to put it back together more healthily. Surgeons wound in order to heal. I think the teacher in Ecclesiastes, the teacher in Ecclesiastes says that death is that surgeon. Death is a cardiologist. Death is the most skillful of heart surgeons because what this surgeon does, what death does, is it looks at your heart and it shows you what you're most living for, okay? Shows you what you most want. I'm not, I'm not going to put them on the spot. Somebody shouted, I can't remember who it was, so that's why you're safe. Somebody shouted out this morning. I said, this idea, look, just look at chapter 1, verse 11, okay? Chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Okay, let me translate that for you. You are going to die, and at some point after you have died, nobody will remember you were even here. Okay, now I said something like that this morning, and I said, how does that make you feel? And somebody said, it's, de- it's depressing. Okay. Do you get that? Is that okay? Do do you know your great 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 grandfather's name? Some of you are going to confine me and say you do, but most of us most of us don't, do we? Once you're dead, very few people will remember you were ever here. And somebody said this morning, "That's depressing." Now, here's my question back to the whole room: Why is that depressing? What? Why? I, I get it. But why do we find it depressing that we won't be remembered? Any thoughts? Because we want to be known, yeah? We want a legacy, yeah? We want to feel like we mattered, okay, yeah, yeah? Yeah, we want to, we want to impact the world in some way, okay? So I would say all of those things have in them the correct, created, we're, we're made to want some of those things, okay? Life is not meaningless. We're meant to do things. We're meant to achieve things, okay? But the, the idea that we should be remembered for generations to come and known for generations is not a biblical idea. The biblical idea is you are here for three score years and ten, and God calls time, and you may leave now. And the world, that's the, the meaning of chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, the world is going to carry on just fine without you. 
And death in Ecclesiastes, this idea that you will die and the world will carry on and it will come and go and there will be generations before you, there's going to be generations after you, that, that is death operating on your heart. What, what do you want out of life? Is that okay for you? Because let me say to you, if that is not okay for you, you will be more unhappy in life than the person for whom that is okay. The person who comes to terms early on in life that life is limited and my time here is finite, you're just going to crack on with life more fully. You're going to enjoy it more actually than the person who is always striving for the legacy, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to, to get more and more. What, what, what death does is it operates on our desire for gain. Okay, And death is God's way of saying, enough human creature. L look at this quote from Derek Kidner. Uh, this is probably... My f I think this is my favorite quote in my whole life from a biblical commentator ever. Derek Kidner commentating on, uh, in his commentary in the Psalms, Psalm 73, something like that, I think. It's not, so it's not on Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. Derek Kidner says, this is the nerve the serpent touched in Eden. This, in other words, this is what the serpent managed to pull off in Eden. That the serpent managed to make paradise seem an insult. The serpent managed to get Adam and Eve to say back to God in this perfect world, is this it? Is this it? Is this all you're giving us? He managed to make paradise seem an insult. The, the human creature here rose above their station. And death is God's way of saying, hang on a second, you, this far and no further. Death is God's no to the human rebellion project. The, the, the attempted coup meets God's no in death in the garden. Okay? So de the fact that you will die is God's way of saying to you this far and no further. The, the world does not need you to be here forever. D death is God's way of saying to you, that there is a limit to your existence. And that, that limit is because of human rebellion, H human attempt to go beyond human limits, creaturely limits, okay? Here, here's another theologian, Jacques Delol, a French theologian. He said this, you are a creature. Our problems do not stem from our failure to stay in our garden. All the evils, and I choose my words carefully, all the evils of the world stem from our taking ourselves to be the creator. It's a beautiful quote, isn't it? It's exactly what Adam and Eve, exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They took themselves to have the, they wanted the knowledge that only God could have. They wanted to be, be God and to be like God. So Ecclesiastes o operates on that desire to be more than we were meant to be. And it, it does it in different ways. I want you just to turn to the end of the book as well, chap chapter 12. Here, here is one way. We're going to come back to this at the end. I'm going to read you a long excerpt from a guy called James Russell Miller. And the reason I'm going to do it is because he was writing to you, uh, 18th century Presbyterian minister, writing to the young people in his, uh, in his church. And here you are right in front of me this evening. So I thought I'm going to give you the whole of James Russell Miller at, at the end of our session this evening. Here is another way death operates on your heart. Chapter 12, 
Let's read these, these incredible verses. This is all about death, 1 to 8, but a particular kind of death, de- death at the end of old age. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rains. Remember what I said, this is just like chapter 1 has um, the elements in the sky. Now here they are at the end, but creation is now coming undone. The sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. The clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinder cease. So this, this, is a pic- this is a picture of the aging human body being like a house. Okay, The keepers of the house tremble. I think that's the hands. It's somebody, it's what happens to old people's hands is that they, they tremble. The strong men are bent. What happens to old age? You literally physically bend over, don't they? The strong men become crooked. Uh, when, when men go to the gym, what do, what do men work on? Nearly, nearly always, whatever else they're doing, men work on arms in the gym, don't they? Because it's where strength is, the, the arm of the Lord. It's a picture of strength. The grinders cease because they are few. It's the teeth. The teeth are, are missing, aren't they? Those who look through the windows are dimmed. The eyes where we're all wearing glasses, the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. Old people do not sleep well, do they? They wake early and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the hair goes white, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. So that that once strong man is now snoozing in the corner after lunch isn't he? he's there he is in a zimmer frame all desire is gone he's a grandpa is asleep in the corner and yet he used to run the world because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets now verse 6 before you you need to go back to the verb at the start in verse 1 12 okay Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Friends, before all of this happens to you, death is coming, verse 5. You are going to go to your eternal home. People will gather to mourn your loss. And before that day comes, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Tomorrow morning, I want to tell you what that looks like to remember your creator. But just this evening, let, let your coming death have that effect on you. You need to remember him before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Fleeting, fleeting, says the preacher, all is fleeting. It's a really powerful description, isn't it? Derek Kidner again has given this incredibly powerful um, commentary on what old age, I, I told you what, what being young feels like, okay, being young feels like being immortal, and Derek Kidner's managed to put old age, uh, old age into words. He, here he is on chapter 12, this description of the house coming to ruin, okay, here's what he says, all of this will come at a stage when there is no longer the resilience of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it. In one's early years and the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are chiefly setbacks. They are not disasters. You expect the sky to clear eventually. 
But now at this stage of life, Ecclesiastes 12, it is hard to adjust to the closing of that long chapter, to know that now in the final stretch there will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again, and time will no longer heal but kill. Now I have older people in our church family, and that, that, that is their life. People, people lose their lifelong partner to Alzheimer's. We have one lady in church who lost her uh, her wonderful lifelong husband to Alzheimer's, her best friend whose husband also died of Alzheimer's. They formed this lovely friendship, and her best friend's family moved to Australia, so she went with them to Australia. The, the, this woman in our church who lost her husband, her own family have moved back up to the Isle of Lewis. She lives in Aberdeen alone. And it's what happens at that stage of life, isn't it? My kids are about to make friends people who they'll have for life. They say goodbye to some people, but they see them again next week. My mum and dad have moved from Belfast to Aberdeen to live with us and said goodbye. It's only, I know it's not far, Scotland to, to Belfast, but said goodbye to some people who have suffered and lost and who they've been through so much with together, knowing that they will now no longer live together anymore. They will not see each other the way that they used to. You are at the stage where all, all your setbacks and knockbacks, you lose a job, I can get another one, a relationship ends, I might find somebody else. You, you move on and you move on. And when you reach a certain age, life is not like that, like that. There is not now the good news to follow the bad news. There is only bad news. It's what happens in old age. And Ecclesiastes says, I want you just to focus on that, on, on, on the meaning of verse 5, that you are going to go to your eternal home, and you might go to your eter eternal home very slowly through the years in a nursing home like this in chapter 12. So how are you going to live? Are you going to let that death operate on who you are now, today, so that you live a certain way? Okay, I'm going to come back to this old age thing right at the end. Go back to chapter 7. The, the, this, this amazing verse, this is the second one now. That's death is a surgeon. This is the second one. Death is a preacher. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. What, what on earth does that mean? Some Christians say, it, well, it means one of those two things I gave you about death. It means that departing this life to be with Christ is better. That, that, that's what it means. Okay, now I think that's, that's theologically true, but it's not what the teacher is meaning. The answer is there in verse 2, isn't it? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Okay, that, that's the answer to what verse 1 means. So th think, think, about, think about verse 1, the day of death better than the day of birth. If you've, if you've ever been in a maternity ward, visiting a friend or had a baby yourself or anything like that in your family, you will know that maternity wards are some of the happiest, they can be some of the happiest places on earth, can't they? These young parents completely, com completely in love with this bundle that's arrived and no idea of what's the pain that's coming to them in the next couple of weeks. Just think this is, this is amazing. And everything has gone well and the family are happy and proud and people are crying tears tears of joy. How can the day of death, gathering for a funeral in verse 2 at the Krem, the house of mourning, 
be better than being in the maternity ward? Here's what I think he means. It's there at the end of verse 2. This is the end of all mankind. That, That little baby... What what can you say about her? Okay, so you 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 come in to see the new mom, new dad. They're as proud as punch, and you you look at the little one. Like what what can you say about them? She looks a bit like her mom. Got the same nose as dad. She's beautiful. Like that's it, isn't it? That's what she hasn't done anything. She's just arrived. She's just there, <laughs> brand brand new baby profoundly precious, but there is not a lot to say about her. She hasn't lived yet, hasn't done anything. But now fast forward 80 years, and this same precious little baby has died, and it's her funeral service in the house of mourning. The end, this is the end of all mankind. She's reached the end of the road. And now somebody stands up to a lectern like this, family member, minister, to speak about her. What will they say about her? Think think of the difference between birth and death. She's lived 80 years. What can you say about somebody then? She loved her garden. She loved knitting. She loved bingo. That's it. Or she was so full of life. She loved her family. She loved us. She loved the Lord Jesus. She, she gave away all that she had to others. She was overflowing in love for God and his world and for his people. And, and, and the funeral service is not long enough to say all that there is about her. See, that, that's the meaning of this verse. It, go, go to the house of mourning, verse 2. And because that is the end of all mankind, the living need to lay it to heart. When it is me, what will they say about me? Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1 means that coffins preach better sermons than cots. That's it, isn't it? Coffins preach better sermons than cots, more full sermons than cots. Um, I, I was just in the States last week. Um, I'm running around like crazy trying to fundraise for our building. So I was in uh, a place in America reading, meeting rich Christians, trying to help them be a lot, le- a lot less rich. Um, and I spoke at an evangelistic dinner on Ecclesiastes. A friend put this dinner together, and it was hands down the most amazing event I've ever spoken at. It was incredible. The, th- the thought and the care that had gone in, this guy invited 36 friends. He had about 10 non-Christian friends there, the rest Christians. And I did five short talks on Ecclesiastes. I did this section here on death. And what he'd done for this, every, every, every short talk had a prop. And at this one, when I came to do the talk on death, he got up and he gave to everybody in the room their own photo. And he'd sourced it off the internet, got everybody's photo and put it, he, he, and he said, I want you just to put this in front of you. And the idea was that everybody was sitting with this photo of themselves in front of themselves so that I could say, one day we will gather, people will gather, and it will be your photo on a funeral order of service. And people will look at that photo and what will they say about you? 
And, and the, this, this friend had devised the whole evening so thoughtfully. He wanted them to discuss in small groups, if you died in a year, what would people say about you? And if you died in 20 years, what would you like them to say about you? And what's the difference between the one year and the, the, the 20 years? It's an incredibly powerful thing, isn't it? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. By, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. You can make yourself live really well and more happily by going to a funeral than by going to a pop concert. You know, that, 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 that's what you've got in, in verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. You, you can make your heart glad with a bit of sadness by thinking about your, your coming death. But listen, I, I've done loads of funerals, tragically many funerals of people like that, where there isn't more to say than just she loved knitting and, and bingo. And at the funerals, you can usually spot most people who just hate being there. They, 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 they're they glad they've got an hour off work, but this is terrible. The football's on tonight. I'll get through this. I'll get back to doing what I'm meant to be doing, get back to the garden out in the sunshine this evening. But the, the, hour, the hour at the crematorium is terrible. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The wise person lives at the creme, and the fool lives at the pub. Because you just push death off to the side. That was them today at lunchtime. This is me now living my life. But verse 2, that the living lay that to heart. That the living know that that is going to be me one day. So friends, de death is not just a surgeon operating on hearts. Death is, death is a preacher. Death is preaching to us about the coming reality of our death, saying when it is us, when it is me, what will they say and how will I have lived? Um, I want to just finish this section about death as a preacher by telling you about two men. Um, it, it's, it's, not, it's not just your own death that can teach us, but some people's own experience of death can be an astonishing teacher. Okay, God brings some people in the world into such incredible contact with shattering loss that the things that he does in their life through that loss can be astonishing for other people. Um, so the, the, these two men, the first man is this man here, um, Gerald Sitzer. Has anybody read this book by Gerald Sitzer, A Grace Disguised? No? It's not on the bookstall. I'm afraid I could have told you about it in advance to get it. Um, this book is an absolute essential must-read, okay? Particularly those of you in pastoral ministry in any form, but any, but for all of us, for anybody, if you've ever experienced any kind of loss and you're trying to process it and get your hands around it, get Gerald Sitzer's book, A Grace Disguised. This book by Gerald Sitzer, he's a professor at a college in, um, uh, in Spokane in, in Washington, America. 1991, he was driving on a rural road in, in Idaho, in the States, and his car was struck by a drunk driver. And in that car crash, the aftermath of it was that he lost his mother, his wife, and his four-year-old daughter in the one car crash. He had two other children in the car with him, a son and a daughter, uh, who survived the crash. 
In that one smash, he lost wife, mother, and four-year-old daughter. And uh, the, the book, A Grace Disguised, is his own, his own uh, accounting of what he went through, uh, the horror of that loss. He, 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 begins, he begins the book by saying that the night of the accident, he, somehow when the aftermath of it was all over and the, 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 the lights and the, of the helicopter and the ambulance and everything, but it all subsided and he was on his own, he said he sank into an armchair and he knew he was slipping into a darkness from which he may never escape. Okay? And yet he wrote this book called, isn't the title astonishing? A Grace Disguised. So in that road accident, he said, that road accident was grace in disguise. Now, that alone is stunning, isn't it? That How on earth could anybody ever say something like that? But then... Where's my, oh, can I just grab my book over here? His book came out, I think, four or five years after the accident. Okay, uh, But wh when I was working on Ecclesiastes myself, I discovered that there is a second edition of the book. That, that picture up there, if you're trying to buy it now, that's what it would look like. Um, it's the second edition of the book, so he's reflected on it many years later. And he, here's what he says in the preface to the second edition of his book. He says that my rawness and my utter bewilderment after the accident have given way to contentment and deep gratitude. My story has turned out to be redemptive, not only for me and my children, but for many other people as well. Because he talks about how people all around the world have written to him with their own stories. And then he says this, okay, this is the astonishing bit. He says this, as strange as it might sound, I wish that every man could experience what I have, though without the acute suffering. Now, I think that he was ever able to describe his trauma as a grace disguised is remarkable. But the fact that he is now standing in a place where he can say that he has received from that trauma the kind of gifts from it that he wishes other people could have, that is truly, surely profound is that it must be a sign of God's incredible work in his life to do, to do that. And I simply want to say to you, you need to get his book and read it to see what the gifts are. How is it possible that there is a grace in that? How, how is it possible that uh, he, he has received from it things that he thinks are so profound? Get the book and read it and you, you'll, you'll be crying within minutes. You'll read it from start to finish. Um, Sitzer, Sitzer even talks about the sickness of the soul that can only be healed through suffering. The sickness of the soul that can only be healed through suffering. And it's how the gospel works, isn't it? What, what, what does it mean to follow the Lord Jesus? We follow a suffering savior. And we know what it means to suffer for being a Christian. We know that that's often part and parcel of it. But actually simply living in this fallen, broken world, there can be things that can happen that if you prepare for them in advance as much as you possibly can, can have life-giving life -giving impact. The other man is this man, um, <clears throat> Nicholas Walterstorff. Walterstorff's a, a philosopher, a Christian philosopher in America. And he has a, a similar book to Sitzer's book called A Grace Disguised. He lost his 25-year-old son, Eric, in a climbing accident. And Walter Stoff wrote this amazing book called Lament for a Son. And I think of the two, the Lament for a Son is impossible to read as a parent without 
weeping. You're just within minutes, you're crying, reading, reading this book. Um, it, it, it's not a meditation on, in the way that Sitzer's one is. It's not an argument. It's not a deep reflection. It is, it is short, short lament psalms, the way that psalms are written in the Bible of where are you, God? How has this happened? But the, the profoundness of his, uh, of his lament is astonishing. Now, the reason for mentioning that, okay, is because Walter Stoff says many years, but a bit like Sitzer had a second edition, Walter Stoff realized that many years after the accident, he met a father, and the father said to him, I, I, I have given your book, Lament for a Son, I have given your book to each of my sons as a gift. And Walter Stoff thought, what an odd thing to do, to give to your living sons a book called Lament for a Son about my grief and loss. And then he said, I realized the reason the father does it is because lament expresses love, doesn't it? Lament expresses love. The reason he wrote the book Lament for a Son is because he loved his son. And when you read that book, the reason it's so powerful is because you're reading his love for his son. And so this other dad said, the only way I can express my deep love for my sons is to give them this book. Now, personally, I don't actually think that's going to have the effect on it. If I give that to my boys, even in a few years, they'd be like, like you know. The, the, but, but the point is, de death, okay, when you read Lament for a Son, you, you will realize how much you love your family. That, that's what it does. Death has the capacity to teach you your own loves. Death has the capacity to teach you, and I say this gently, particularly us men, death has the capacity to teach you the language of your own soul that you don't even know yourself. Because it's only usually after we've lost someone that we're plunged into this immense world of grief and sorrow, and we think, if only I'd said to them what I now know now. Ecclesiastes is a book that says, look, before that happens, l learn to love really well. Le learn to say the things to your loved ones that you wish you could say to them if you'd lost them. And l let the fact of coming death teach you how much you love people. You, you love them more than you know you love them. Let the fact of your coming death Absorb it into your life now so that you, you live well in relationship to others because of it. Here's, here's what Walter Stoff says, because of what happened to him, I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. Th that is what death can do if you listen to death's sermon, if you listen to it in advance and listen to people who have met death. Death makes some people bitter, doesn't it, and twisted, but not everybody. Some people learn from death. So I, I want to finish with this this evening. I'm going to read you now a long excerpt. I hope you'll find this beautiful. Now, this is going back to the idea of, of old, old age. Okay, James Russell Miller, Presbyterian minister from the late 19th century, and he wrote these essays specifically for young people in his congregation. Okay? And the, the essay, this essay is called Beautiful Old Age. And I've often, I've often thought, I wonder about all the people, 19th century, I wonder about all the people that read James Russell Miller's article, the, the young people in his church. 
And I've often wondered what became of them as they grew old and how many ge generations have passed since then, 19th century, there's been decades of, of young people. Okay, now here you are this evening, friends, it is your turn. L listen to this, this is what he said. Beautiful old age. Old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before. Old age is the barn into which all the sheaves are gathered. It is the sea into which all the rills and rivers of life flow from their springs in the hills and valleys of youth and manhood. Each of us in our earlier years are building the house in which we shall have to live when we grow old. And we may make that house a prison or a palace. We may make that house very beautiful, adorning it with taste and filling it with objects that will minister to our pleasure, comfort and power. We may cover the walls with lovely pictures. We may spread luxurious couches of ease on which to rest. We may lay up in store great supplies of provision upon which to feed in the days of hunger and feebleness. We may gather and pile away large bundles of wood to keep the fires blazing brightly in the long winter days and nights of old age. It's a be beautiful idea, isn't it? You are choosing now the house in which you're going to live when you grow old. In other words, the type of person you're going to be. Or, or we may make our house very gloomy. We may hang the chamber walls with horrid pictures, covering them with ghastly specters that will look down upon us and haunt us, filling our souls with terror when we sit in the gathering darkness of life's nightfall. We may make beds of thorns to rest upon. We may lay up, upon, we may lay up nothing to feed upon in the hunger and craving of declining years. We may have no fuel ready for winter fires. We may plant roses to bloom about our doors and fragrant gardens to pour their perfumes about us, or we may sow weeds and briars to flaunt themselves in our faces as we sit in our doorways in the gloaming. All old age is not beautiful. All old people are not happy. Some old people are very wretched with hollow sepulchral lives. Many an ancient palace was built over a dark dungeon. There were the, mar there were the marble halls that shone with dazzling splendor in the sunlight. There were the the wide gilded chambers with their magnificent frescoes and their splendid adornments, the gaiety, the music, and the revelry. But deep down beneath all this luxurious splendor and dazzling display, the dungeon was filled with its unhappy victims. It may have been abundant comforts and much that tells of prosperity in an outward sense. There may have been wealth, honor, pomp, circumstances of greatness, but it was only a palace built over a gloomy dungeon of memory. It is possible to live so as to make old age very sad, and it is possible to live so as to make old age very beautiful. The important practical question is this, how can we so live that when old age comes, it shall be beautiful and happy? It will not do to adjourn this question until the evening shadows are upon us. It will be too late to consider it. Consciously or unconsciously, we are every day helping to settle the question whether our old age is going to be sweet and peaceful or going to be bitter and wretched. It is worth our while then to think a little about how to make sure of a happy old age. Here's his tips for a happy old age. Number one, we must live a useful life. 
Nothing good ever comes out of idleness or out of selfishness. Standing water stagnates and breeds decay and death. It is the running stream that keeps pure and sweet. The fruit of an idle life is never joy and peace. Now, this is a Solomon in church speaking to younger people. What, what is one of the main things you read in the book of Proverbs to avoid? Idleness, the sluggard, laziness. Years lived selfishly, later on, never become garden spots in the field of memory. Isn't that a nice phrase? Years lived selfishly, never become garden spots in the field of memory. Happiness actually comes out of self-denial for the good of others. Sweet always are the memories of good deeds done and sacrifices made. I, I, I just love that, friends. The old person in your church that you warm to and you want to be with and the old person who seems to radiate contentment, my lovely lady uh, in church who lost her husband and her best friend, who, who, who you want to sit beside and get to know. Do you know why you want to? Because she has lived a sacrificial life. She has given herself to others. Their incense, memories of good deeds done and sacrifices made, their incense like heavenly perfume comes floating up from the fields of toil and it fills old age with holy fragrance. When one has lived to bless others, one has many grateful loving friends whose affection proves a wonderful source of joy when the days of feebleness come. Bread cast upon waters, we're going to look at this tomorrow, is found again after many days. Listen to this. Number two, I see some people who do not seem to want to make friends. They are unsocial, unsympathetic. As my children say, he's talking about you, Dad. They are, they are unsocial, unsympathetic, cold, distant, disobliging. They are selfish. Others, again, make no effort to retain their friends. They cast them away for the slightest cause, but they are robbing their later years of joy that they cannot afford to lose. If we would walk in the warmth of friendship's beams in the late evening time, then we must seek to make ourselves loyal and faithful friends in the hours that come before. This we can do by a ministry of kindness and self-forgetfulness. Number three, we must live a pure life. So live a useful life, live a friend-filled life. We must live a pure and holy life. Everybody carries within himself or herself the sources of their own happiness or wretchedness. Circumstances really have very little to do with our inner experience. It matters little in the determination of one's degree of enjoyment, whether you live in a cottage or a palace. It is self after all. It is self that in largest measure gives color to our skies and the tone to the music we hear. A happy heart sees rainbows and brilliance everywhere, even in darkest clouds. A happy heart hears sweet strains of song even amidst the loudest wailings of the storm. And a sad heart, an unhappy and discontented heart, sees spots in the sun. It sees specks in the rarest fruits. It sees something with which to find fault in the most perfect of God's works and it hears discords and jarring notes in the heavenliest music. You ever, you, ever, you ever met an old person like Victor Meldrew? You know, that kind of man, there's just something wrong with everything. So it comes about that this whole question of happiness in old age must be settled from within. The fountains rise in the heart itself. 
The old man, like the snail, carries his house on his back. He may change neighbors or homes or scenes or companions, but he, but he cannot get away from himself and his own past. Sinful years put thorns on the pillow on which the head of old age rests. Lives of passion and evil store away bitter fountains from which the old man has to drink. Sin may seem pleasant to us now, but we must not forget how it will appear when we get past it and turn to look back on it. Especially, we must keep in mind how sin will seem from a dying pillow. Nothing brings such pure peace and quiet joy at the close as a well-lived past. Every single day we are laying up the food on which we will feed in the closing years. We are hanging up pictures about the walls of our hearts that we shall have to look at when we sit in the shadows. How important that we live pure and holy lives. Even forgiven sins will mar the peace of old age, for the ugly scars will remain. Summing it all up in one, only Christ can make any life, young or old, truly beautiful or truly happy. Only Christ can cure the heart's restless fever and give quietness and calmness. Only Christ can purify that sinful fountain within us, our corrupt nature, and make us holy. To have a peaceful and blessed ending to life, we must live it with Christ. Such a life will grow brighter even to its close. Its last days are the sunniest and the sweetest. The more earth's joys fail, the nearer and more satisfying do the comforts become. And friends, I, I might get emotional. I love this ending to it, uh, to what he says. The nests over which the wing of God droops, the nests over which the wing of God droops, which in the bright summer days of prosperous strength lay hidden among the leaves, stand out uncovered in the days of decay and feebleness, when the winter has stripped the branches bare. And for such a life, death has no terrors. The tokens of its approach are but the land birds lighting on the shrouds, telling the weary mariner that he is nearing the haven. The end is but the touching of the weather-beaten keel on the shore of glory. Amen. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, as we bow before you together, we want to thank you this evening for those who have gone ahead of us, for faithful uh, men like this pastor who loved the young people in his care, who loved them enough to tell them that one day they too would be old like him. We want to pray, Heavenly Father, for each of us, young and old in this room, that again this evening you would operate on our hearts, show us the future. Show us what is coming in your good world that yet has so much brokenness within it. Until we are with you, death and decay and decline remain our lot. And so, gracious Father, before those days come, teach us, we pray, to treasure you, to love your law, to love your gospel, to love what it means to be yours in this beautiful world in which we live. And so hear us, we pray. Make us know you and love you. And cause us to walk with you all the days that you have given to us. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Mm -hmm.